You're listening to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Scott B. Bowman. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is the monthly podcast that brings you up close and personal with some of the finest songwriters around. We talk about their lives and careers, get the stories behind their songs, and find out how they approach their craft. If you enjoy the show, please visit our website at songcraftshow.com. You can sign up for our email list and send us a message to let us know what you think. We invite iTunes users to leave us a five-star rating and review as we work to spread the word about the great conversations we're having here at Songcraft. Our guest on this episode of Songcraft is singer-songwriter Brandi Clark. Her 2013 debut album, 12 Stories, landed on the year-end best-of lists of Rolling Stone, NPR, American Songwriter, and New York Magazine before earning her a nomination for Best Country Album and Best New Artist in any genre at the upcoming 2015 Grammy Awards. Clark's meticulously crafted drinking and thinking songs, as she described them to All Things Considered, reflect a new brand of progressively-minded traditional country that has been enthusiastically embraced by both the honky-tonk crowd and public radio audiences. Before stepping into the spotlight as an artist, however, Clark put in more than a decade as a hardworking Nashville-based tunesmith whose songs are recorded by Toby Keith, Reba McIntyre, Leanne Rimes, Darius Rucker, Gretchen Wilson, Keith Urban, and Cheryl Crow. She co-wrote the band Perry's Better Dig 2, which hit number one in early 2013. That same year, she was nominated for a CMA, AMA, and Grammy Award for co-writing Miranda Lambert's Mama's Broken Heart. She won Song of the Year at the 2014 CMA Awards for Follow Your Arrow, which she co-wrote with Shane McAnally and artist Casey Musgraves. Her next album will be released by Warner Brothers Records, which signed her to their Los Angeles division in late 2014. One of our listeners this month will have the opportunity to win Brandy Clark's excellent album, 12 Stories. Simply go to our website at www.songcraftshow.com, hit the contact button, and send us a message with Brandy Clark, 12 Stories, in the body of your message. We will contact the lucky winner and also post their name on the news section of our website next month. Brandy Clark's star is certainly on the rise, and it's an honor for us to have her here today as our guest. Brandy, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you. Um, now, you obviously are based in Nashville, and your work has primarily been in the country music industry, but you are not a Southerner. Uh, you grew up in Morton, Washington, near Mount St. Helens, and I'd like to hear a little bit about uh, your growing up years and how your background there uh, shaped the perspective that you bring to your music in the country world. Well, yeah, I grew up in Morton, Washington, which is about 900 people, or was about 900 people when I grew up there. It was a small logging community, and even though it's about as far from the south as you can get, very southern, and just the small town values, and um, everybody knows everybody sort of place. Um, I think it shaped me to be a songwriter because, for one reason, the only radio station that would come in very well where we lived was the country station. Huh. And so if we want to listen to the radio, that's what we listen to. And yeah. then I've always had a real, um, I've always had a real affinity and a love for big characters. And I think it's because in a town that small, you get to know a lot of characters. Um, they're probably walking around, you know, a big city. You just don't meet them like you do when there's only 900 of you. <laughs> right. uh, so a lot of what I write about <clears throat> actually comes from my growing up in Morton and different people you know there's always somebody when you're writing a song some grain of truth and for me there's always some character and a lot of times the characters that I'm writing about or thinking about um I grew up with yeah and you hear that in your music sort of that um like the the struggles of the everyday person yeah I mean you know and actually it was a big turning point for me in my songwriting career I always tried to write for a long time I tried to write songs that I thought would impress other songwriters and then at some point, I decided, you know, I'm, I want to write songs that if the person working at the bank, the, the girl at the teller window, if she were to write a song, what she would write about. Huh. And that was a real corner turner for me. And I think that having grown up where I did and, and um, just all the different people I knew, and I still have friends I went to school with, I'm still um, in touch with a lot of them and they are out working 40-hour-a-week jobs as bank right. tellers or beauticians and uh, school teachers. And so I keep up with them, and, and I try to write about the things that matter to them and, and the things that 
that they tell me they don't want anybody to know about, you know, put them in a song. <laughs> right. Give voice to to those who might not have the forum to express their, their everyday lives. Exactly. Now, you talk about this uh, country station coming in uh, in Morton. Um, what were some of the things that you were hearing on that station that kind of caught your attention? And sort of a second part to that question, who kind of became some of your early songwriting heroes? Well, um, you know, without knowing it, Dean Dillon was definitely an early songwriting hero because George Strait was coming through. Yeah. So a lot of the early George Strait stuff. Um, I remember the first concert I ever went to was Ronnie Millsap. Right. And huh. he was huge on the radio when I was a kid. So that definitely had an influence. And then my grandparents lived next door, and what was on country radio was too pop for them. And they were listening to things like Merle Haggard and Loretta Lynn and George Jones. So I had that going on, too. And I think that's part of why I've always really been drawn to the classic country sound. Had I not right. had my grandparents next door, I might not have had that. Because definitely, you know, my parents loved country music, but it was more Alabama, like I said, Ronnie Millsap, Barbara Mandrell, more of what was a pop country sound in the early 80s. Sure, yeah, yeah. So you sort of absorbed that pop sensibility that was coming into country and also stayed kind of rooted in the in the traditions. Yes. Now, at some point, you kind of moved from listening to music to going, okay, I think I can write these things. Um, what, what can you tell us about the first things you were writing and maybe even the first time you got up on stage and actually sang a song that you wrote all by yourself? Well, I was in a band with my mom and another friend, and um, we were doing all kinds of fairs around Washington and Oregon. And I was working, like, a, I was working a day job, and a friend of mine at the day job said, I think it's so cool when bands write their own song. <laughs> so I thought, well, man, then I've got to write songs for this band. Yeah. And so the first songs I wrote were with my mom, and she was really encouraging to me to write. And I don't remember, once I did that, you know, and, and got that first, you know, you play it live, and we played it, and people loved it, and then I was hooked. Yeah. And definitely, like, all first-time songwriters felt like I had written a classic, you know? <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Did, yeah, you don't happen to remember the name of the first song you wrote, do you? It was called Missing You. Missing? Oh. Yeah, I, can, I do still remember that. And nice. before that, as a kid, you know, I would try to write songs, but, you know, I was taking somebody else's melody and putting lyrics over it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, the Weird Al version of songwriting. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so it sounds like music was definitely all in the family for you, listening to music with your grandmother and writing with your mother. So it must have been quite a decision to move to Nashville and leave your family behind. It was, but I, and I don't think I would have had I not been pushed a little by them. I mean, I was mm. definitely the girl who didn't want to leave home. and um, I think my parents, you know, wanted me to do as much of it as I could and and didn't want me to just, you know, work some job that I hated right. and play in a bar band on the weekends. Because that was all that all there was for music around where I was at. I mean, the band that we were in had kind of tapped out what could be done around there. And I think yeah. they, they saw how driven I was and, you know, kind of thought, look, if you're going to do this, really go do it. And, um, you know, thank God, because otherwise... I probably would be somewhere watching the CMA Awards thinking, man, I wish I could do that. I saw you play at a, at a songwriter's night in Nashville in the early to mid-2000s. Um, and I remember you played uh, That's Why I Hate Pontiacs, which hmm. completely blew me away because that song is just so good. Um, oh, thank you. It was like hearing a fresh voice, you know, a fresh perspective. And I understand that that song was actually one of your very first cuts, if not your first, but that it wasn't technically released. What what happened with all that? Well, thank you for saying all that about that. It's still one of my favorite songs. And I have a, actually have a friend in Nashville who always says, it doesn't matter how many songs you write, your best song is always going to be That's Why I Hate Pontiac. <laughs> um, but um, it was recorded by, it was actually recorded by Rebecca Lynn Howard, and Amanda Wilkinson at the same time. And Amanda's version was released in Canada, I think. Um, and it was a radio single for Rebecca Lynn, but it, they put it out and pulled it a couple weeks later. Wisteria vines were climbing 
Every sunset was a watercolor Had the promise of a perfect summer A blue-eyed boy with a red trans We spent hours on his hood just laughing In between the moonlight dancing And it was way too short but oh so sweet Don't know what it was to him It was love to me It's why I hate Pontiacs Black vinyl sheets and cracker jacks With plastic rings, they play it back That goodbye scene on a warm September night It's why I hate River Road With the windows down and too below So, um, you know, not a ton of people heard it, and they made yeah. a video. And why did they pull it? They were trying to get radio ads, and I think they maybe got fourteen ads, right, right, out of one hundred and forty-two stations. And it was just slow going, and um, the album that it was going to be on, they shelved, and which means it didn't come out. Sure. Um, she did a great job on it, though. Both yeah. both versions of it were really good. Well, talk about. I mean, here you you've moved to Nashville. You've worked really hard. You're 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 working on your craft. You get this cut. It's a major label artist. They make a video. It comes out, and then all of a sudden, it disappears. I mean, emotionally, what is what was that experience like for you? Um. Well, I kind of got used to it because that actually happens to me a lot. Yeah. Um, I, it only happened to me on a couple of singles. But, you know, it starts to happen. By the time I had one that worked, um, which was the band Perry and Better Dick 2, I was just just prepped for it to not succeed. Um, <laughs> right. I had a single on uh, Micah Roberts, same thing, Things a Mama Don't Know. Toby Keys actually did a guest vocal spot. Right. They they shot a beautiful video, and then it yeah. got 11 ads over the course of two weeks. By 2013, there were a lot of people who sort of said, whoa, who is this uh, Brandy Clark who appeared out of nowhere overnight? Um, but that overnight success was really the result of more than a decade slogging it out in the songwriting trenches uh, in Nashville, you know? And like mm-hmm. you say, there there are those disappointments. That's part of the, the climb, so to speak. Uh, did you ever just get frustrated and think about, man, I'm just going to hang it up and head back to Washington? You know, the only time I ever felt like that, because to me it was always part of the process, like I always felt like there was, um, you know, there was a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, There were actually two times I thought about hanging it up. One was my dad was killed in a logging accident. Mm -hmm. Um, I had been in Nashville maybe five years. And so that definitely made me rethink some things and you know how long how far did I really want to be from my mom that kind of thing right so I think anybody would feel that way then and then right before I had success I was in kind of a rough publishing situation where I mean it was it was all good people but one of the people that was working with the writers was really really hard on all of us and you know would make fun of our songs and we had these big company meetings and when I came out of that I did think am I doing the right thing because I just felt so beat down. And, and you can deal with things like you're single only getting 11 ads when you're being encouraged. Yeah. You know, like, oh, this is great. But when that that starts to happen and you're getting told all the time that your songs suck, <laughs> right. I definitely had a little moment where I thought, man, what am, what what should I do? Yeah. But I, I didn't know what else I would do. Sure. And honestly, I, at that point, I had put in so much time that yeah. I thought... God, I can't start over at something else. Right, yeah, yeah. Well, and, you know, we mentioned Pontiacs and Things a Mama Don't Know, which you co-wrote both those songs with Martin Armore and Liz Rose, both Mm -hmm. uh, amazing people and amazing writers. Um, In 2010, however, you you had your first cuts that were co-written with Shane McAnally, with Mm -hmm. with whom you have had, you know, tremendous success. Um, and Reba McIntyre cut uh, The Day She Got Divorced and Cry on her All the Women I Am album. And I want to hear a little bit of, of Cry. I might bite my lip Look down at my shoes 
lips I might clench my fist Or just leave the room But I'm not gonna cry Cry has such an authentic emotional resonance to it. And, you know, it's easy for commercial music these days to kind of sound contrived, but, but that song doesn't. And I know in a songwriting session, oftentimes you come in, you've either just met somebody or you're kind of getting to know each other. You've got a few hours to spend together. How do you come up with that kind of confessional and personal tone with someone maybe that you just met or even when you're collaborating with somebody that you know well? When, when you're sharing this moment with people, how do you get down so deep? Well, I wrote, like you had you mentioned, I wrote that with Shane McAnally, and that was actually one of the very first songs that Shane and I wrote, and um, so it was early on in us getting to know each other, and yeah. Shane was a real turning point for me, because I met him during that point where I was real down, and, and um, you know, he, he, he made me feel good about my songs and my natural instincts, and my natural instinct for that was to write that really simple. Um, yeah. And, but I would have fought that instinct and, and did try to fight it. And when I brought that to Shane, what I had, he, he's like, well, that's the whole chorus. Oh. And I was like, oh, no, there's, that's too simple. And he said, no, 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 that's, that's perfect. Yeah. And oh. so, you know, when someone is like that, the way Shane, Shane is the, the best co-writer I've ever met. He, he can write with anyone because he can do that. He makes yeah. people, he brings out the best in people, and hmm. he's really good at seeing what other people are good at, and his ego never gets in the way of what someone else is good at, and that's just a, that's that's a huge talent, you know? Yeah. I, um, he, I think he could he could write with anybody, and, and they'll write their best song with him. That sounds like a real trust element. Oh, yeah. yeah. He, he's, with him, you instantly feel... Like you can trust him and tell him anything, and you know you're never you you can always dare to suck with Shane. Um, <laughs> that's something he would say, you know. You should put um, that on a T-shirt. Dare to suck. Dare to suck. <laughs> yeah, because you know that was really I believe the best songs are. I mean, the best lines are oftentimes the worst lines. You know, something hmm. you say that you think, oh, that's really stupid. It's basically it's just this fine line. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, you had mentioned Better Dig 2, which was really the, the big, uh, the huge breakthrough. I told you on the day we went, I was going to love you till I stand. Made you wait till our wedding night, that's the first and the last time I'll wear white. So if the task is Here's this song headed to the number one spot on the country chart, even hit number 28 on the pop chart. Um, talk about writing that song, how that came together uh, with Shane, and then the experience of seeing it become so successful. Better Dick 2 is an interesting story of how that was written. I was writing one day with someone else and was leaving the, com the company where they wrote Going Out the Back Door, and Shane was in there writing with Trevor Rosen, who I had never met. Right. And... He said, hey, come on in and meet Trevor. And I had I loved the songs that Trevor was writing with Shane, so I knew him through his songs. And, and Trevor started to play that opening lick of Better Dig 2, right. and we just started writing that from the top down. Mm. And we worked on it for about an hour, and then we all had to leave. Right. And we didn't get back together for another year. Wow. Shane said, what about that thing we started when we got together? So he played it back for us, 
and we loved it, and we we finished it that day, and uh, we demoed it shortly thereafter. Casey Musgraves actually sang the demo of that, and so um, she sang the demo, and uh, we were thinking that you know Miranda Lambert would cut it or Carrie Underwood. We never saw Van Perry, and their manager heard it and loved it, and um, held it for about a year. Yeah, and they they ended up doing a whole record with Rick Rubin. Um, and then the label wanted singles, and so they were going to cut singles with uh, Dan Huff, and I think they cut four songs, and right. Better Dig 2 was one of them, and they cut it, and, and two weeks later put it out. Wow. They cut that, and they cut another song that um, Shane and Josh Osborne and Matt Ramsey um, wrote called Chainsaw, and right. it was going to be one of those two for the single, and Better Dig 2 ended up, they ended up putting it out, and Chainsaw was this the last single off that record, I think, but they both became singles, but I remember thinking, God, I hope it's mine. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, right? (laughs) Yeah, finally. Um, And that was an amazing, it was such an amazing thing. The first time I heard it was when they performed it on the CMAs. Um, Trevor and I got to be there for that, which was awesome. And just, you know, it was the first time, actually, for me, the first time when I thought, man, this didn't really happen was when Reba cut those two songs. But right. then to have a successful single right. is another level of, oh, my God, this is amazing, which uh, happened with Better Dig 2. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's, it's amazing to think about all the little pieces that have to come together to get a song to its final point. You know, from the moment right. you start writing it to then the moment you finish writing it a year later and mm-hmm. and then the process of recording the demo which i mean you, of course you never know obviously you would have sang it beautifully but probably mm-hmm. having casey's voice on there gave it something you know it definitely but did yeah, it's, it's just crazy to see how, how a story comes together and you know people hear a song on the radio and they don't realize um the the lengthy narrative that goes to making a song what it is you mentioned Miranda Lambert a second ago. You thought maybe she would be the type of artist to cut uh, Better Dig 2. Uh, in 2011, she recorded Mama's Broken Heart, which you uh, co-wrote with Shane and, and also Casey Musgraves, who we were just talking about. Word got around to the butterflies and the Baptist. My mama's phone started ringing off the hook. I can hear her now saying she ain't gonna have it. Don't matter how you feel, it only matters how you Mama's Broken Heart was released as the fourth single from Miranda's uh, For the Record album in 2013, around the same time that uh, Better Dig 2 was really hitting, and that one climbed Mm -hmm. up to number two on the Billboard Country chart and hit the top 20 on the pop chart, was certified platinum, and then you guys earned a nomination for Song of the Year at the CMA Awards and the AMA Awards, as well as a Grammy nomination for Best Country Song. Um, All of this is sort of happening at once. Uh, Did you see Mm -hmm. any sort of tangible changes in your life and in your career as a result of, of this success that you were experiencing all of a sudden? Oh, you know, definitely. Um, all of a sudden, you know, I've, I felt like people started to really appreciate my songs in the way that you always want your songs appreciated. Um, and I think it was just because I don't think they were really that much different than songs I was writing five years prior. They yeah. just, all of a sudden they had a certain light focused on them. And, um, you know, and, uh, so, I mean, it felt pretty good. And, and, um, and I was able to get opportunities like to write with Miranda, um, that I probably wouldn't have had otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, obviously the theme of, of mama's broken heart is a woman of a younger generation kicking against this idea that she, has to bury her feelings and put on a polite face to be a lady. And I love the line, uh, my mama came from a softer generation, when you get a grip and bite your lip just to save a little face. Uh, and, and I feel like 2013 was the year that a new generation of expressive women started shaking things up again in the country music world. And I think of your debut album, which we'll talk more about here in a minute, um, I think of Ashley Monroe's Like a Rose album that has 
lyrics on it, such as Go Call Your No Good Brother, We Both Know What He's Been Growing, I'll Be Waiting With The Whipped Cream and Baby Let's Get Going, Give Me Weed Instead Of Roses, Give Me Whiskey Instead Of Wine, Every Puff, Every Shot, You're Looking Better All The Time. Uh, I think of, of Casey Musgraves, fantastic, same trailer, different park record, which had three Brandy Clark co-writes on it, including Follow Your Arrow, which you uh, co-wrote with Casey and, and Shane. Girls singing about kissing girls and rolling joints is not something that I would have imagined would be so wholeheartedly embraced in country music. And I look at all of this and I think, you know, is this all just some kind of coincidence or are we in kind of a new era of empowered female singer-songwriters in Nashville? That's a great question. Um, I think we are. I think that, um, you know, it's no it's no secret that the the country radio charts are dominated by men right now. And so I think with women not being played as much, um, kind of frees this female voice up a little bit, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because I think, you know, I would have never thought a song like Follow Your Arrow would even make a record. I mean, Casey has a lot of gumption to, to not only put that on a record, but then to fight, she had to fight for that to be a single. Yeah. And, at the time, I was disappointed because it knocked another song I had written with her that I thought would be a, a successful single off the record. But, uh, you know, she got the last laugh, and, and I <laughs> right. did too, because it ended up, you know, winning Song of the Year, and that song would have not done that. Um, I mean, I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth, but I think someone like Casey, you know, she, she really tried to, to give radio some things they would play, and when they didn't, she said, well, fine, then I just want to do, I want to put Follow Your Arrow out. Yeah. yeah. And that song has a bigger impact um, than a lot of songs that are big hits. I know for me, I've had two hits. And people, when people ask me what I've written, and I say, oh, I wrote Better Do Two and Mama's Broken Heart, they're like, oh, I love that. I, I was singing Mama's Broken Heart on karaoke the other night and <laughs> right. all that stuff. And then when I say, and I wrote Follow Your Arrow, it's like I wrote Bridge Over Troubled Water. I mean, they're just like, <laughs> You wrote Follow Your Arrow? Wow. But I do think, like, Casey coming out, I know for me, you know, it's done amazing things. And I think even bigger than what it's done for her in her career is what it's done overall for all female artists. Because I don't know that my record would have even gotten the listening to that it got had it not been for Casey's record. I think that really opened the doors for some records like Ashley's and mine and, you know, now Angelina Presley and... Um, Holly Williams, and and I think that that sort of whetted people's appetite for real songs. Yeah, yeah. wow. Well, you, you you talk a lot about the reaction that "Follow Your Arrow" has gotten and the influence that it's had. And um, when it won Song of the Year, then you stood up in front of Nashville basically and received Nashville's response to the song, which was "We love it, we love you." What did it feel like to get that kind of recognition at that point? After all the work, the hard work that you'd put in. Huge. I mean, I I can't even really articulate what that feels like, um, except just amazing. And that night for me, when I heard the word "follow," when mm. Tim Tebow opened the envelope, um, I didn't. I don't remember much after that. <laughs> wow. As far yeah. as going up on stage and and then being backstage and um, doing interviews after that, it just it blows my mind what that little song means to people. Yeah. Um, because we definitely weren't trying to write something that was a big statement. You know, Casey had written this poem to a friend of hers that was going overseas, and it just said, kiss lots of boys and smoke lots of joints and follow your arrow. And um, so she wanted to turn that into a song, and we did, and so it was pretty amazing. Yeah. Well, and obviously that song got a lot of attention, um, but I want to take a listen to a song that you and Shane co-wrote that wasn't quite as big of a hit, which was Wade Bowen's Songs About Trucks. Whatever happened to a feeling bad song 
So the lyrics of this song kind of skewer the general bro country trend of the last few years and call for a return to the heartbreaking weeper style songs that characterize traditional country. And I feel a real yearning in your songs for country's traditions. Uh, But at the same time, you and Shane are, are both openly gay. You're writing lyrics that are very edgy and progressive. You're open-minded. You're not afraid to tackle real issues. Um, and talk a little bit about that tension of what draws you to kind of the roots of country's traditions, but also pushes you to kind of expand and challenge the parameters of what country music is willing to address. Well, I, I will, I mean, I, to me, country music is what life makes life worth living. For me, I mean, and to see it die, the traditions of country music die would just, I don't want to see that happen in my lifetime. So as long as I'm alive and making music, it's going to have a traditional slant. Um, You know, for a long time, I didn't know if, um, like you mentioned, Shane and I are both openly gay, if me being gay would keep me out of country music and its traditions. And and it hasn't. And so that's an amazing thing. I don't really care to write about very many gay things in songs. Um, I think I've kind of gotten that reputation because of Follow Your Arrow. And <laughs> I always say, I'm not even the one who said kiss lots of girls. <laughs> right. <laughs> that wasn't even my line. Um, I also think that country music to me, when I was a kid in the country music that we were listening to, I didn't really even know what it was about. Right. But I knew it was adult things. And I think country music should be adult music. Like yeah. I think it should tackle adult themes and and I think it should tackle you know things that people don't want to that everybody goes through and it's nice to know you're not the only one going through them. Yeah. Right. Um I mean it's why everybody loves crazy. That's that's my favorite country song of all time. And I think it's because everybody has been crazy in love with someone like that before. Right. Or you know, um, help me make it through the night, or the, I mean, I love the chair. All those songs. Um, I think I just I I really believe that. I mean, you know, it, I'm not saying that that people who write songs about partying and having a good time need to be ostracized from country music, but I think we need to remember that it, we're building on the foundation of things like he stopped loving her today and. Right, And that's, yeah. you know, we need to sit down every day, at least for me. I mean, I don't always, I don't always do this, but when I sit down to write a song and I, and I can say this for Shane as well, he also loves, nobody knows more about historically about country. Well, some people do, but very few people know more about the history of country music than Shane McAnally does. And, right. um, I, you know, I know, Part of what drew he and I to each other is we both wanted to write a classic song. Yeah, yeah. And for me, when I when I sat down, that's I'm 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 trying to write something that, you know, two hundred years from now, people are going to still listen to because as you get further and further away, you remember less and less of what was in the past. And so the right. only things that you really, that really still stand out are the really great things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting too, that country music is kind of the only media that I can think of that has gotten more conservative. Um, mm-hmm. because I think they were kind of socially pushing the envelope in some regards. I mean, it's, it's hard for us to listen to Loretta Lynn saying a song like the pill and realize how, um, groundbreaking that was at the time uh, it really was kind of pushing the envelope and so I, I think you make an interesting point that you guys uh by being kind of more progressive and, and dealing with adult themes really are kind of taking us back to to something at the same time that you're you're pushing ahead um and, and I think you know you you said you 
were concerned at some point, like, is the fact that you are gay going to, to hamper your career? Um, several high profile country stars have come out very recently. Um, mm-hmm. but their commercial success is, you know, honestly, it's, it's behind them. Um, mm-hmm. and I actually cannot think of an example of an openly gay country singer who has been as successful as you have been while also, uh, being open about who they are while on the rise, so to speak. Um, and, and what's even more notable is that it, it hasn't really seemed to be an issue at all. Um, it ha- you know, it hasn't been, and it really goes to show that people, for, for one thing, by the time I, I was made a record, I was too far out to be in any closet. And, <laughs> and I never made my sexuality, I never wanted my sexuality to be a big deal. Right. You right. know, I just, I wanted it to be about music and, I would feel that way if I were heterosexual. I mean, I've, you know, I, I use Casey as an example. Like, nobody talks about Casey being openly heterosexual. <laughs> right, right. Um, I always wanted it to be about the music, but I think most people don't care that just love music. They just want good music. And so, um, and, I, and, and I think since I didn't make it a big deal or try to make it a secret, I was pretty accepted. So let's talk about your album, 12 Stories, which was released on Slate Creek Records and recently picked up by Warner Brothers. So I understand that it was kind of a long road making that record and then getting it released. Tell us a little bit about that whole process. It was. Um, my manager, Emily Marchbank, who approached me, I didn't know her. She was she worked at Fitzgerald Hartley, and she heard some demos of mine and loved them and approached me and said, would you want to make a record? And I said, yeah. For a minute, I thought I was on candid camera. <laughs> right. When does that happen? <laughs> yeah. So I proceeded to make this record. I made it with Dave Brainerd. Um, and the making of the record was pretty easy. We made it over a four-month period. And, you know, I would write during the day, and he would work on other projects, and then we would work on it at night. And it was just a magical process. Um, and when it was done, it was a little more commercial than what Fitzgerald Hartley had envisioned it would be. And so... They decided to pitch it to major labels, and um, you know we got really close. And there were a lot of you know a lot of bites and a lot of a lot of don't play this for anyone else. We're, we want to do something, and then at the end of the day, it just didn't work out. And so I was getting tired of all that rejection, and I said, if we're going to do this, let's just do it. Let's just put it out on our own. And so I had paid to make a video for Stripes, and. We were getting ready to, to put that out, and about two days before we were going to release it, Jim Burnett, who owns Slate Creek Records, um, approached us and said, hey, if you'll hold off a little, I'd love to get involved and help you. And I had heard that before, so I wasn't going to hold off. <laughs> I said, well, we can hold off on putting the whole record out a few months, but we're putting stripes out because CMT is willing to play the video, and you know we can't wait any longer. So we did that. And he wanted to put it out, I want to say, in January of 2014, and I said, oh, no, it's coming, <laughs> it's coming out before 2014. So yeah. we agreed on October 22nd of, of, the, of 2013, and by the time that record came out, it had been done for two years. Wow. So by that point, you know, it had been passed on a lot, and I had started to feel like, well, maybe it's really not very good. So for it to come out, and make all those year in end of year best list, whatever those are called, right. was really really gratifying. Yeah, and um, and you know probably the most gratifying moment of my musical career thus far was when it got nominated for a Grammy. Because wow. yeah. to me, that's a, I, I feel like I've already won because that record means so much to me and it meant so much to Dave and Emily and then all the writers that held those songs when other more successful artists could have cut them. Right. To see it in that group of album, country albums of the year is just, it's more validation than, than any one person deserves, but I'll um, take it. Yeah. And it, it sounds like as you describe that process and so many other parts of the things that you've been talking about, that so much of the emotional management of being both an artist and a writer has to do with this kind of controlled optimism where you kind of are keeping your hopes high, but your expectations low. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It sounds like at times you almost expect like, oh, I'm probably going to get bad news. And yet you still find a way to kind of roll out, go to the next session, keep trying, keep putting coins in that slot machine and keep working, you know? It's a really good way to put it. You keep putting coins in the slot machine. Um, yeah, you have, to, you have to like the doing of the deed. I mean, I enjoy writing songs and I enjoy 
being in the studio and making records, um, if I didn't enjoy those things so much, I mean, getting to make a record to me is like eating birthday cake. I mean, <laughs> it's like, oh my God, this is just like Disneyland. Right. Because yeah. you've put in all this work writing all these songs and, you know, to get to the point where you have enough songs for a record that you feel are good enough for a record, you know, takes a lot of time and a lot of work and, um, so once you finally get to that point, it's just fun. I, I, I want to listen to a little bit of uh, Pray to Jesus, which is the first song on that album. We live in trailers and apartments, too. From California to Kalamazoo. Grow up, get married, and when that one is... Tell me, what inspired you to write that song? I was actually watching the Showtime series Weave, and there was a scene where the main character, she's gotten into all this trouble for selling marijuana, and she's up in Canada working as um, working in housekeeping in a hotel. And she's in the laundry facility in the basement of the hotel, and somebody's done something terrible on the sheets. I can't remember what it was, but it was awful. <laughs> and and her and this other maid are cleaning it up, and, and the main character says to the the woman who's the maid, who's obviously worked there for years, she says, how do you live this life? And the woman says, I pray to Jesus and play the lotto. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, and it hit me, like, oh, that's a song. And I let that marinate for a long time, and I told Shane about it, and he loved it and was like, oh, I want to write that with you. And I remember us driving around one day and getting a piece of that melody. And then we wrote it. We actually wrote it in a basement. It's funny that they were in the basement huh. when we said that. Yeah. And we wrote it in the basement of the publishing office. Well, and, and you referenced the show Weeds. And then uh, I wanted to ask you about another uh, song title called Get High, funny enough. Um, and, and that's a song that captures a very real portrait of a very believable character. She hates her job, loves her kids, bored with her husband, tired of the same old list of things to do. So when the to-dos have all been done, she sits down at the kitchen table, rolls herself a fat one. Smokes so sweet, fills the air. She maybe ought to crack a window. All she can do is stare at the paint. That's been appealing off of the walls. A couple of tokes and her troubles don't seem all that tall. You know, life will let you down. Sometimes the only way to get by is to get high. Did you write that song about anyone in particular? I did. I wrote that about a girl I went to high school with. And the character's a little bit of a composite character, but it started with this with this girl I went to high school with. And I actually wrote that song when Weeds first came out. I loved that series. Hmm. And so it just kind of got me thinking of her because I remember right after high school... I would go over to her house, and, and she already had kids and was married, and I was in college, and and sometimes she would put her kids down for a nap and get stoned. <laughs> and, um, and I thought about her. I would think about her a lot and just what, you know, just where her life was, and, and that's who that song was about. Mm, wow. Um, one of my favorite songs on the record that you've, you've mentioned is Stripes, uh, in which you had the chance to 
play on uh, David Letterman's show, which was super cool. You were lying there with nothing on but a goofy little grin and a platinum blonde. I can't believe you do that on our bed. I got a pistol and I got a bullet and a pissed off finger just itching to pull it. The only thing keeping me from losing my head. Cause I hate strikes and orange ain't my One of the things that that I love about your writing is that it's clever and it's it's actually funny, um, but it manages to stay fresh. Uh, in other words, it's not like gimmicky or hokey funny. Um, oh, thank you. And how do you how do you strike that balance? I try. I, I my favorite movies to watch, um, and I actually know that we have this in common, Scott, who we've talked about this movie. Um, I love a dark comedy, like Raising Arizona. Oh, yes. Classic. And um, (laughs) so when I'm writing something, that's what I want it to be, is Raising Arizona. Like, I (laughs) want it to be, if I'm going to tackle a really sad or heavy issue, I want a little humor in there. Because I believe life is a dark comedy. You know, and that's the only way we can get through a lot of it, is to just laugh. So I I feel like I hit some really heavy things, and so i got to stick a little humor in there. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and I think you you do you do funny well and you're not afraid to get dark. Uh and I think of a song like um Take a Little Pill which tackles prescription drug addiction. I mean, that's not really uh I mean, that's not something you hear people writing songs about, but it's it, you write about it in such a a beautiful way. Um and, and I, I almost hear just listening to your album and these stories of, of people's lives that it's almost kind of like dark and funny are, are two sides of the same coin for you. Mm-hmm. They are. I mean, because a lot of times the truth is really is is almost always funnier and stranger than fiction. And and actually, Take a Little Pill is one of the most personal songs on the record to me. I wrote that about um, a family member it started the first verse. Right. And it, it always strikes me as crazy how, you know, everybody will talk about like your uncle that's drunk at the family reunions. Right. But nobody ever talks about your aunt that's pilled out all the time. <laughs> that's true. Right. But I, and that song, I think a lot of people must have that person in their family because that one seems to really resonate with people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I want to hear a little bit of of, uh, of Homecoming Queen, uh, which Cheryl Crow recorded. Twenty-eight shouldn't look this old, but the last teen years sure took their toll on the girl in the picture with a plastic crown. That sequin dress wouldn't fit her now like it did before the kids. Yeah, she loves her husband cause she says she would Oh, it ain't so bad, but it ain't so good She swore she wouldn't get stuck in this town Now she's cutting coupons two doors down from her mom And it goes on Yeah, too bad life ain't a local parade In your uncle's Corvette on a Saturday that is such a great song. Uh, oh, thank you. How do you decide what songs to pitch to other artists and which ones they're kind of like, I'm holding this one back for my record? Well, actually, I mean, I believe songs are meant to meant to land where they land. It's funny you would mention Homecoming Queen because I'm starting to really get to get get a get a concept for what my next record is going to be and a Homecoming Queen might be on it. Because huh. um, I also feel like if a song is great and somebody else records it, be it Show Crow or Reba, that shouldn't keep me from recording it too. And, yeah. you know, you talk about, um, old, you know, like 
country music traditions, people used to, they used several artists used to cut the same song. I wish that we would oh, yeah. get back to that time again. They'd fight up, fight, fight each other up the charts with the same single at the same time <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> back in the fifties. Well, and so recently, I mean, you've been continuing this. You've had songs recorded by Darius Rucker and Gretchen Wilson, Keith Urban, Toby Keith. Um, so are, are you finding it, uh, that you're making a concerted effort to keep writing for other artists or are you just writing songs? I'm just, I'm just always trying to write songs. And when I, you know, usually what makes it a song for me is when no one else will record it. <laughs> you know, like a lot of those songs on that record. And then as I go forward are songs that people, other, other artists were kind of scared of. And yeah. so I think that's how I carve a niche for myself is to do songs that, resonate with people that maybe maybe other maybe are a little too far left yeah. or a little too far right yeah for anyone else well and you, you know you talked about your next album and coming up with the concept for it uh and that album's going to be released by warner brothers and you were recently mm-hmm. signed i guess to their los angeles division rather than the nashville branch and i'm wondering are you planning to take the music in more of kind of a pop rock direction or are you going to kind of stay more the country route you've been doing oh i'll stay the country route and and um, luckily for me, Warner L.A. has a rich tradition of um, of great country music. I mean, Dwight Yoakam and Amy Lou Harris were both signed out of Warner L.A. And yeah, um, so I feel I couldn't have found a better home for me musically. They don't want me to do anything but just be me and mm. record the kind of songs that I write. Well, we think L.A. is a pretty good home too. Yeah, it's not bad. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, I, I gotta say, Brandy, uh, just congratulations, uh, to you on your, your nomination at the Grammys for, for best country album, which, uh, doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, it's such an incredible record and, um, and to get best new artist, uh, to have that nomination to see Brandy Clark up against Iggy Azalea and Sam Smith. I mean, it's just really cool. And, and it's, it's just neat to see, uh, all of your success and all the accolades that you have have received in the last couple of years. When I when my publicist sent me the album of the year, um, the the picture and it had you know me in the middle of all those nominees, I started shaking and crying, and I've never experienced that. I yeah. didn't experience that winning a CMA. I think I felt so I felt so validated in that moment, and then the overall artist best new artist that really didn't even hit me for for a couple days um but just all of it feels like you know with the grammys there's a lot of integrity associated with the grammys i guess and congrats on your nomination as well scott oh thank you yeah you know mine is for a category that no one's ever heard of (laughs) you know what a Grammy's a Grammy. Well, those Grammy Awards are coming up on February 8th here real soon, so I know that we are keeping our fingers crossed for Brandy Clark to take home some Grammys. That would be very cool. Thank you. Once again, thank you to Brandy Clark for taking some time out of her busy schedule to spend some time with Songcraft today. We hope you enjoyed today's interview, and be sure to go to songcraftshow.com. Send us a message with Brandy Clark 12 stories in it, and you will be entered for a chance to win a free copy of that album. And don't forget to go to iTunes, give us a five-star review, and let the world know what you think about Songcraft. We'll see you next time. <laughs>